probably heard the expression, you have to fill your own cup, but it's really hard if there is no water. A lot of people around that, they're like, I don't say anything racist, so I'm not the problem. Till we recognize that there are other ways of seeing the world and those ways are just as valid as Western ways, it's gonna be really hard. This is Michelle Lamb from Leaning In and Speaking Out, a podcast hosted by Brandon University's CARES Research Center. This podcast is part of a special series on social justice in education, conducted by students in Gustavo Mora's class called Schools as Complex Spaces. Jackie and I would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to Gustavo, his students, and their guests, who are having crucial conversations about what it means to educate within contexts like the climate crisis, racism, addictions, and more. Thank you, and enjoy the show. So, hello everybody. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Emma, and Tannis and I are sitting here over Zoom with Madeline, and today we are here to talk about racism in the classroom, more specifically how we can instruct future students better. Thank you both for being here today. Madeline, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Emma, for for introducing the podcast and for inviting me here today and Tannis as well. Uh, So my name is Madeline and I am currently working as a project coordinator at Brandon University for a project called Safe Places for Aging and Care. Um, but I'm also involved in a few different other research projects through, at the university. And the one that's probably the most relevant to the conversation that we're having is uh, one that looked at racism in healthcare settings in the Faculty of Nursing at Brandon University. And that was a project that was led by Candice Waddell Hanowich, who is uh, one of the instructors at the Faculty of Nursing. And what we did is we spoke to nursing students about their experiences of racism, uh, both directly experienced and witnessed. So that was in the classroom, in educational settings, but also in practical and practicum settings and in clinical settings. Uh, So that is uh, the most direct experience that I have looking at racism in educational settings explicitly. Um, But I've also been involved in a few other projects that look more at educational programming before my current role as project coordinator at Uh, The Safe Places for Aging and Care project, I was project coordinator for the Restoring Autism Project, which is led by Dr. Patty Douglas out of the Faculty of Education at BU. And we looked at experiences of autistic students in educational systems and how they, uh, how educational systems could work better for them and how they could be more inclusive. So there is some kind of cross applicability there to having discussions about inclusion in educational systems um, for everyone and trying to make everything as uh, increase equity. Yeah. So, so that's me a little bit. Uh, my educational background is I originally studied international relations and I completed a master's in global health at McMaster University. And more recently, I am completing a degree in disaster management at Brandon University as well. So I'm a little bit eclectic background. Thank you. Hannes, do you want to start off with the first question? Yeah. All right. So the first question is more to focusing on equality and equity. So what are some ways that we can promote equality and how to distinguish between equity and equality and if they're the same thing or not? That's a really great question, Tanis. And I'd actually like to premise this whole conversation by saying that as a white person, I am not an expert in lived experiences of racism. And I think that that's something really important to say at the onset of any kind of conversation about equity and about access and privilege is to distinguish and say that it is our responsibility to educate ourselves and to support anti-racist movements. But as 
someone who is white, I can never truly have that lived experience or that understanding of what it is like to experience uh, racism. So, um, but that does not mean that I can abdicate responsibility. I think as white people who benefit from systems of, from racist systems, that's can be uh, institutional racism or it can be kind of interpersonal racism or any type of racism, we as white people benefit whether or not we perpetrate racist actions or not. So it is our responsibility to understand how we benefit from racism and how we can kind of work to try to create equity. So that leads really nicely into your question about what is the difference between equity and equality. And whenever I think about this, uh, I think to this image that I saw, someone had drawn an illustration, a little cartoon of these three people who were watching a baseball game over a fence. And there was a really tall person, a kind of average height person, and someone who was probably like really quite small. And uh, they all had been given one box to stand on to be able to see over the fence. And that is kind of an illustration of what equality is in that everyone is given the same tool for the same situation. However, the tall person didn't need the box and the really short person couldn't see over the fence even with the help of one box. So the illustration of equity would be to give two to the really short person, uh, to give one to the person who was kind of average size and the really tall person didn't need that. So it's kind of, I know it's a bit glib, um, but that's just what I always go to immediately when people are thinking or asking about equity versus equality in that equality is about giving everyone the same resources, whereas equity is giving everyone the resources that they need to reach the same place. Uh, that's kind of my understanding of it in general. Um, And in terms of the most effective ways to promote equality, that's really challenging. And I think it's different for each situation. I think it, I think it comes down to effort. Like it doesn't just happen naturally. It happens. uh, It takes a lot of conscientious changes and and progression conversations and conversations like that, like this that we're having right now to talk about ways forward and how we can continue to educate ourselves and how we can continue to implement changes. And I think one of the most important tools that we can use are the voices of those who have experienced uh, discrimination, either because of racism or because of other types of other forms of discrimination. So those people with their lived experiences, we have to listen to them and listen to what they need and then support them as, as allies and to try to support them to achieve those means. It's not just their responsibility to do the fight. It's ours to support them as well and to try to amplify their voices. I hope that responded to your question. Yeah, that was a very thorough answer. Are very informational for everyone, I think. All right. So we as future teachers, as in Hannes and I and and present teachers, and just us as people, we're always around many people with diverse backgrounds. How can we learn and appreciate our students' background and family lives? Learn about. Yeah. Uh, And it's, I think, such an important thing to have that conversation as future teachers, because you will have such huge impacts on your students' lives and uh, on their entire communities. I think a huge part of it is compassion and just recognizing that everyone is coming and bringing their own things into whatever that interactions are and whatever that learning environment is. And recognizing that, uh, you know, we're all going through human experiences and just trying to embrace and give people that benefit of the doubt and trying to have honest conversations and communication. So it's not a very specific kind of tool set, but compassion and communication, I think, are the most important things that not just educators, but anyone can use in in approaching conversations about 
appreciating your students' backgrounds and their family lives, but uh, also creating just like open and safe spaces where people can feel comfortable in being honest about their own experiences and, you know, feel like they're able to be vulnerable. Does that answer your question? Yes, for sure. Um, What makes it difficult for people to develop that that empathy and compassion, do you think? (laughs) I mean, this is where I kind of devolve into like a capitalist rant uh, about how the systems that we have don't really support or give people enough resources, enough time to be able to have that, you know, open systems of communication, especially when we have too few resources in systems, um, especially in education and in healthcare. I'm just going to bring that in from my own background. I think that as we continue to take resources away, the practitioners in those environments are so burnt out. And it's so hard to remember that everyone else is going through the same thing when you're exhausted and your own mental health is struggling. So, I mean, you probably heard the expression, you have to fill your own cup, but it's really hard if there is no water that's being given to you to fill your cup with. So I think that resources are incredibly important and that recognizing that we need to support those systems so that practitioners have the energy and the the emotional bandwidth to be able to support their students and create those safe spaces. Because it's not easy. It takes a lot of emotional energy and a lot of regular practice and communication and developing skills, communication skills, uh, to be able to create those, those safe spaces. So there's a lot of racism and discrimination in this world, but we're going to focus on how it mainly affects like school systems as we are like going into teaching. So how does it affect schools and how can we as teachers engage in conversations about race with our students? So I'll just premise this by saying that my main experience with racism in education is at the post-secondary level in university settings, but I think that it does apply as well to secondary and to primary levels, and that it's so important to begin having conversations about race and racism early on. But how can they affect schools? Right. So I think racism and discrimination can affect all different relationships in educational environments. And so often when we talk about racism, we think of, oh, like students or people who already have less power who are having negative experiences because of racism and racism that's interpersonal, either from a student to student level or from an institutional level. But there is racism that can exist from students towards educators, educators towards one another, students towards one another, educators towards students, um, and other people who are involved in that entire educational paradigm, including, you know, teacher's aides or other support staff. Or then we have to look at the institutional aspects as as well. So it's trying to understand what institutional racism is and how policies may in themselves be racist or not support anti-racism praxis, which is the creation of anti-racism spaces and spaces that are safe for uh, people who like BIPOC folks. So in saying that, once we recognize that racism can permeate all the, these different types of environments and all of these different types of relationships, you can realize how incredibly impactful racism can be at all levels. It's not just about limiting the educational opportunities of students. It's about uh, limiting you know, the ability of educators to have decent work, to feel safe in their workplaces or to feel like they can share their experiences in a fulsome way. Um, it might limit if people are trying to share things about their own culture or using those or looking at topics or concepts through a different lens other than this kind of westernized lens, it might limit how they feel that they can share that education. So I think ultimately racism in educational settings 
perpetuate, like self-perpetuates and it allows the system to just continue to happen and to continue to emphasize the primacy of Western under Western lenses of understanding. And until we recognize that there are other ways of seeing the world and those ways are just as valid as, you know, Western ways, uh, it's going to be really hard to, and that's a really hard thing to do, but it's, it's a very worthwhile thing to do. And I think it will make everyone's lives better. It will make everyone, you know, have a, be able to like, they can seek self-fulfillment more easily. Uh, I hope that uh, kind of got to the crux of the issue. Yeah. Can you just go a little more into depth as to what institutional and structural racism are and maybe like the differences between the two? Sure. Um, So institutional racism is, uh, (laughs) I was actually having a conversation about this just the other day about institutional racism in healthcare settings and how it's very commonly misunderstood. Um, And even there was a statement from our prime minister who said that we don't have institutional racism in Canada because we don't have explicitly racist laws that discriminate against uh, racialized folks. And, you know, we don't, most of those laws have been removed. That's true, but that does not, not mean that the laws now and the mores and the guiding kind of policies of our institutions support anti-racism. So I think to get to the heart of this issue, I'm going to have to describe anti-racism. I'm not sure if that's something that you're both familiar with versus anti-racism versus just uh, not participating in racist actions. So they're very different. And Anti-racism is, as anyone, uh, regardless of your race, but especially for white folks, I think it's acknowledging that the systems that were built in Canada and elsewhere, especially in colonial societies, were built to benefit people who have white skin. Um, They were built, and whether or not you personally feel like you are benefiting from it all the time, Regardless, just because by virtue of being white, we benefit because we are not discriminated against. And the fact that opportunities might not be as available to people of color or to um, Black or Indigenous folks, it means that there are more opportunities that are available for people who are white. And there's all of these kind of insidious ways in which it permeates our systems and our institutions that... It's it's really tricky and it can feel very vulnerable to acknowledge that I won't like that as a white person, you benefit from racism, even if you yourself don't feel like you're a racist person and you have never done anything racist intentionally. So uh, on that kind of line, in order to be anti-racist, you have to actively dismantle the systems that were built to benefit white folks. So that includes our educational systems, uh, especially because a lot of the educational systems were built on kind of these capitalist models of production and we bring in students to be able to fulfill these roles in capitalist societies but also in Canada we have legacies of of, um, residential schools which include that kind of that model so we have to look and recognize what our history is uh, in terms of educational systems and then we have to dismantle them in or revolutionize them in ways that support racialized folks rather than just don't harm them. It's rather, it's, it's supporting. It's not, it's, it's limiting active harm, but it's also supporting if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, uh, in terms of your, stru- your question about structural racism, um, to be honest, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the difference on the, uh, on the differentiations there. So I don't feel as though I am enough of an expert to go into that question. Uh, so I will just, uh, continue on maybe to the next one. All right. All good. <laughs> all right. 
I I just have a comment. I appreciate you saying like society is is structurally built to I guess favor white people because I think a lot of a lot of people don't a lot of people don't realize that I think and they they do just there's a lot of people around that they're like I don't say anything racist but like so I'm not the problem but they everyone needs to kind of clue into their role that this that we play in society because everyone does play a role exactly and it is challenging I think emotionally and I think for a lot of people who don't or haven't really spent a lot of time looking at these issues it can feel like they've done I think people feel as though they're being blamed for the systems that exist um and no one wants to feel like they're being blamed. It's much easier to just push it off to the side and say, oh, like, I'm not, you know, I may be complicit in the fact that these systems exist, but it's not my problem. I don't, I didn't make the systems. Uh, I'm not a bad person. And that's an understandable reaction because like I said, it's emotionally difficult to feel like, like you're in the wrong. I think people feel like they're in the wrong when they, they start to try to have this kind of thought process as to, you know, you benefit from racist systems, therefore I'm a bad person or I've done something wrong. And that's not true. It's not that you're a bad person or that, you know, we've done something wrong. It's just that we need to do a lot better to dismantle these systems and to, you know, continue to have those thoughts and conversations. And, and those, you know, those feelings are what really contributes to white fragility, for example, and, you know, people getting really defensive over being white and saying like, oh, I, I haven't, you know, this isn't my problem. I haven't done anything wrong. I, you know, so I think it is a really sensitive conversation to have, but so important. And I think earlier you asked, someone asked about uh, the importance of starting, you know, have teaching about race and racism when, when students are really young. And I think the earlier we can introduce those concepts, the easier it is to prevent people from having that kind of reactive, this doesn't feel good, so push it away kind of feeling, right? So earlier I had asked a question and you you had touched base on resources and like how they're important. So my next question kind of relays into that. What materials can we find elsewhere that could be added to our classroom that so everyone like feels included. Yeah, I think that there's a few different ways to look at this, and those can be uh, either like pedagogy, like different materials for your own instructional abilities, and how can you access those teaching materials to be able to help you be a better teacher or an instructor to help educate yourself on issues of racism. But it can also be uh, materials that are accessible to students or just ways to make classroom environments more accessible on a whole. So, you know, we can talk about teaching materials themselves, about concepts and ideas, or about like the physical environments of classroom settings. Um, so it's really difficult for me to say like there is a few definitive materials that you should look at because every every environment's different, every demographic's different, every every class is different, and every student is different. And depending on where you are, some materials might be much more appropriate than others. Uh, so I think in these types of situations where you're trying to create inclusive and safe environments for everyone, for students and staff and educators and anyone else who happens to be there, I think it's recognizing what the needs of that environment are. So, you know, if you're working in a Northern community, for example, it's going to be very different uh, than if you're working in, a, you know, an urban area that is has a high concentration of newcomers. Uh, so for me, one of the golden rules, I think, is trying to uh, find things that are representative 
of the experiences of the people that are there and things that also can kind of show people other experiences. So it's really important for people to see themselves represented in educational materials and in cultural materials. That's, you know, we've seen a really great increase in that recently, I think, especially over the past like five or 10 years, there's been a lot more representation and a lot more centering of diverse experiences outside of like, especially white male Western experiences. But, um, you know, I think we still need to do that conscientiously and to recognize what the students in our, in the classrooms are, uh, like what their needs are and find materials that are representative of their experiences so they can feel like their experiences are valued and valid. And then also to go beyond that, to show people and show students, especially when they're young, that there are diver- there's a wide diversity of experiences just beyond that. So, <laughs> Uh, everything and everything. <laughs> I know it's not very specific. No, thank you. Yeah, I my first thought when you said um, it's kind of been progressing the last five or ten years is when I was when I was little, all the books in our classroom. Like I cannot remember many minorities being represented, but now I worked in a school last year just for a year as an EA, and they it has become better because like every child. I'm sure loves to read a book that they can relate to or they can feel, like you said, appreciated. And Exactly. And it creates that, it makes people feel as though their culture or their background or whatever their experiences are and their identity is not, they're not outsiders. They're, they're included in that conversation. They're included in that educational environment. They're included in the culture and they're included in the community. And when people start to do that, they start to feel safe. And I think people are able to learn a lot better, you know, be way more interested in reading about someone whose experiences you can relate to than someone who you absolutely have no idea, like what those experiences are, because it's just a different world. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad to hear that there was kind of, you, you even saw some of that progression in your recent experiences in classrooms. All right. So the next question is how we can influence our students um, through racism and have a positive positive influence on them. So help them learn more about it in a good way that they'll in the future hopefully help other people through it. Yeah, and this is also a tricky one. Um, but I think, you know, learning through modeling positive behavior and through trying to model as much acceptance as you possibly can. Uh, Students, as you both know, are incredibly perceptive to, you know, biases and to things that you might not even consciously be trying to teach them. It might not be involved in your particular curriculum, but those kind of subtle social or interpersonal behaviors can really, uh, students see that and they can absorb that, you know, in our conversations with autistic students or people who, uh, students who had gone through kind of the school system and like later on were reflecting on their experiences. Um, a lot of them said, you know, we weren't, a lot of the conversations or the educators, they didn't explicitly say things, but it was in these unspoken behaviors that really made me feel excluded and made me feel as though I didn't belong and that my experiences weren't valued. And I think that that's really important to try to recognize, especially for educators, that it's not just about the words you say and about the, you know, actual teaching materials. It's about how you model your own behaviors. And as we were kind of talking a little bit earlier about that white fragility and that importance of recognizing that racism is a structural issue that white people benefit from, I think showing that you understand that and that you are, that it's not something that to be ashamed of, but it's something that requires change 
You know, like it's not something to push away because it feels bad. Even though it does feel bad, you still have to recognize it and try to positively contribute to systemic change rather than saying, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you know, we're not going to talk about this because it's difficult or it's challenging. So I think it's giving students the benefit of the doubt that they have the capacity to have difficult conversations and to handle emotionally challenging topics in a a way that's appropriate, obviously, for whatever the age is. But yeah, I, I hope that addresses that that question that you had mm-hmm. yeah, probably, kids, yeah kids watch everything they're always very open and honest about what they see they don't really care what other people think they want to be heard in a way and I think that it's also important that we also hold ourselves responsible to what we say whether we realize it or not just make sure that we're aware of what other kids around us are hearing and what they're taking away from that Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the the demographics here in Brandon and in Manitoba and in Canada are continuously changing and continuously developing and, you know, from rural to urban and there's many newcomers coming in and we're really trying to come to more of a reckoning of our understanding of of the influence of Indigenous cultures here and Indigenous experiences. So, you know, in the allied healthcare professions, for example, we we hold people to account for lifelong learning. And I think that applies as much to educators as it does to healthcare practitioners in that systems change and the populations that you serve change. And it is your responsibility to see the ways in which they change and to continue to develop your skill sets and your, your knowledge base to be able to continue to serve those populations as that as they as they develop. Similar to what you had said earlier, I will always be a white female teacher and as much as I can research and learn, I will never know I will never know how it truly feels to go through all these experiences and I think it's important for the kids to know that I don't know everything. Like no one knows every answer in the book or every situation. And it's okay to take a step back and be like, I'm going to educate myself on this and come back with a educated answer instead of just, instead of just pretending to understand. Exactly. Yeah. I think having that humility is so important and recognizing that there are many things that we don't know and, but just not knowing is not an excuse for not trying to get the information, right? Like it's about trying to continue to educate yourself and acknowledging that we're all, you know, on, you know, different stages of this learning path. And as educators, you are responsible for sharing information, but you're also responsible for educating yourselves and for educating one another, That kind of leads us perfectly to the last question. What can we as teachers or just people do to educate ourselves when we are outside of the classroom so we can be more prepared when we step into it? I think trying to find a wide diversity of experiences for yourself. Like you were saying earlier, you know, you can never have that true understanding or that true knowledge of that lived experience uh, of someone who's experienced racism. But you can find all of these other different types of diverse experiences that you can kind of pursue. And I think, you know, once we kind of complete our formal education, especially in ter- like in uh, post-secondary, it can very, be very easy to get sort of complacent and we kind of fall into our comfort zones and we keep the same social circles. And especially once we begin working in an environment, you know, it's there's a lot of learning immediately, but then it can be very easy to sort of fall into a rhythm. 
and that's great and it's comfortable, but I think trying to push yourselves and push ourselves to try to continually find new experiences. And that doesn't just have to be about, you know, speaking to people of different backgrounds, but I think that that is in itself great, but it can be, you know, different cultural things, different courses, different doing, um, you know, an online course about indigenous knowledge systems, for example, or it could be going to a play about something that you don't really know uh, to, you know, just try to continually find these new perspectives and challenge yourself to think about things in different ways. Um, it's, it's challenging, it's expensive, it can be exhausting, but it doesn't have to be. Like, it can be fun and it can be social and it can be, you know, there's a ton of amazing resources um, that are available to everyone for free, um, like at the library, for example, or culturally or online or all of these different kind of environments that we are able to access. So I think trying to take advantage of those in like a fulsome way is the best way that we can do service to those that we serve. Um, um I guess now it's time if you have questions for Tanis and I that yeah. that concludes our questions that we have prepared for you sure so Emma you actually kind of began to respond to this already but I wanted to know what you both think are kind of the most important tools to bring into educational systems to contribute to anti-racist environments for students like I said earlier I think it's you always have to educate yourself every day. There's always something to learn. And I think it's some people have a hard time listening and it's important to listen to our students and what they've experienced and listen to other people around the world and try not to know it all. Just be open to new information. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say very much the same thing. Just educate yourself it may not always be like comfortable what you're researching and trying to learn about but it's still important to know so just pushing yourself out of that comfort zone and if you want like engaging with your students in it and admitting that maybe you don't even know the answer to their question and doing that research with them maybe just educating yourself as much as possible as well as just asking for help like or learning from other teachers or people around you that maybe have gone through these experiences because they can also help you understand better kind of what it's like, what these students have possibly gone through, just to better understand and hopefully build a stronger relationship with them. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad to hear kind of both of your perspectives on this really important topic. And I think it's the only way to contribute as we can to reducing the experiences of racism um, for racialized folks in educational systems and to doing the really difficult work of trying to dismantle these racist systems that we still have in Canada. Um, so I really appreciated being invited here to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, of course. All right, then that brings us to the end of the podcast. So thank you all for listening. Um, hope you all learned something new today. And another big thanks to Madeline for joining us. And it was a pleasure to speak with you both. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast from Brandon University. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Centre, please visit our website at bucares.ca or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube or anywhere you get your podcasts.